No, Esther is, uh, it's one of those books in the Old Testament, so you have to kind of maybe shake the dust off of the back of your Bible if you uh, haven't, if you have your Bible with you. You can open it up to chapter 4, and this is a story that kind of, it tells the, a story of how the Jews are saved ultimately and really by God's providence, that God is kind of working behind the scenes, and I mentioned that uh, for one, because there's a, a plot to destroy or annihilate, completely wipe out all the Jews, and God is going to come in and save them, but he uses providence, and I use that word because he's not mentioned in the book directly. He's kind of behind the scenes. We see him in between the lines. We see how he's working through the characters, even though he's not directly mentioned. And uh, as we'll see today, Esther plays a really pivotal role in the salvation of the Jews uh, through this story. And that's probably why the book is named after Esther. She's actually not in every chapter. She wasn't in last week at all, as as Sam mentioned. Uh, But she plays a pivotal role in the salvation of the Jews. That's God's kind of providence through her, as we'll see this week and in the next few weeks especially. So let's read together. Esther chapter 4. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, There was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. When Esther's Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. She She sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Then Esther summoned Hatak, we'll go with Hatak, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. So Hatak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. He also gave him a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and explain to her, and he told and he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence and beg for mercy and plead with him for her people. Hatak went back and reported to Esther and Mordecai. And reported, sorry, and reported to Esther and Mordecai what Mordecai had said. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, All the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who, appro- who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, they, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But thirty days have passed since I was called to the king. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer, Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. 
For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susav and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night and day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you, Lord, for your providence, your purpose behind the scenes in this story and in our lives today. I pray, Father, that you would open our hearts today to hear what you would have for us in this text, and that you would give me wisdom to speak only your truth as we go through it. In Jesus' name, amen. So, it begins as a lot of the, we have to kind of always keep in mind that the chapter breakdowns happened after it was written. It wasn't, they weren't originally in there as, the, as we have them now in our Bibles. And so, uh, we're going to look, we have to kind of do a little bit of a recap and kind of bring the story back into uh, what, what he's actually talking about. Because he starts off when Mordecai learned of all that had been done. So let's go back and look at what had been done in the last few chapters. It began really in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, when Mordecai had warned Esther to tell the, uh, to tell the king that there's a plot that he had overheard to assassinate the king. So he was standing at the gate. We said he was probably in that, put in that position somehow. He's standing at the gate. He overhears some guys talking about wanting to kill the king, and he conveys that to Esther, who conveys it to the king. And it's investigated. It's proven to be true. So Mordecai really saved the king here. That's at the end. That's how chapter 2 ends. And then right into chapter 3, so again, this would have been flowing literally just right next to each other, sentence for sentence almost, we're told that Haman has been elevated to a high position, and he's been given authority over all the other nobles. So he's kind of second in command under the king. And so the implication, as we looked at last week, seems to be that he's getting the credit for what Mordecai had done. So Mordecai, there's this great plot that's discovered, you know, this, you know, all these things happen behind the scenes, and then suddenly this guy's elevated to the highest position of authority. So it seems a bit like maybe he got the credit for what Mordecai had done. And after this, Haman is kind of parading through the streets, as you do when you're second in command, I guess. He's riding his horse, and everybody that's in front of, that he comes to is, uh, is bowing down. Everybody except Mordecai. And last week, Sam pointed out that there's really no good reason for Mordecai not to bow down. It wasn't an act of worship. It wasn't idolatry for him to do this. Um, it was quite common. We, he looked at some examples. Uh, King David bowed down to Saul as he came out of the cave. There's, there's several other examples where men had bowed down to other men. It was just a, a sign of honor. It, it didn't necessarily mean um, that you were worshiping them or anything. And Sam, as Sam put it last week, his words, don't be stupid. Very encouraging. And how Mordecai kind of seems to be instigating trouble where he doesn't really need to. He didn't need to, you know, stand up and be rebellious. He could have just, you know, submitted and maybe things would have gone differently. Maybe he's jealous. It's a bit unclear uh, exactly what his motive was. 
But needless to say, Haman noticed it, and he's not pleased. And he kind of then sets his mind. He's like, this one guy thinks he's too good to bow down to me. And he sets his mind to destroy Mordecai. And he clearly also had something against the Jews in general because he was like, hmm, I'll just use this as a ticket to not only destroy Mordecai, but I want to wipe out all Jews everywhere. So it's overkill. Something has gone terribly wrong in this guy's heart that he wants to destroy an entire people group based off of this, possibly because of this one instant. And it, it talks about the money that he offered. He had offered, we, Sam pointed out that it was about the amount of money, about the amount of silver that the entire empire would have collected in a year. So it's like all of the money, all of the income for Germany in one year, he offered and at one go, it was literally tons, literal tons of silver to the king so that he could annihilate the Jews. He's taking it seriously. It's something he really wants to do. And the king doesn't care about the money. Obviously, he's got more than enough. And so he says, keep the money, but he goes ahead and grants him permission to destroy the Jews anyway. We also looked at in the last few weeks, and we'll continue to see, this king is kind of a, eh, whatever kind of king. He seems to just agree with whatever is proposed to him. There's never any kind of decision process. He's just like, yeah, sure, it sounds, if that's what you want to do, go for it. He's very poorly depicted in the book of Esther. And not a, not a main character. So Haman gets permission to kill all the Jews, and then he casts lots to choose a day, which is where actually the, well, we'll look at that in, in the end of chapter, in chapter 9 where the uh, festival of Purim comes from, but we'll talk about that later. So he casts lots, and everything is set. It's sealed by the king, by his ring, it can, and it now cannot be undone. The word's gone out to all 127 provinces, so all the cities, all of them, all the people know. And let's read verse 1 again. So when Mordecai learned of all that had been done, so this is everything that's happened. Now it's, it's set that there's going to be a date, it's... Uh, written down when the Jews will be destroyed by their enemies. They're just, they have the legal right then to kill them, basically. So he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city wailing loudly and bitterly. And this sackcloth was something, it was unsightly, it was itchy, clothing, very uncomfortable, and it was a sign of mourning, a sign of that he was in distress. And it says that uh, many of the Jews were laying in sackcloth and ashes. So of course they were, right? They're they're upset. Mordecai seems as to be making an, a bit of an extra scene, if you will. Um, he says that he can't enter into in through the king's gate. Kind of feels like maybe he tried. Like maybe he he put on sackcloth. He's he's yelling. He's crying. He's mourning, and he tried to get into or in through the king's gate, and he couldn't make it. So he's sitting right outside. And uh, we, this tells us that there's kind of some type of, especially also looking at Esther's response, when she's like freaked out by hearing about it, there's some kind of cultural stigma with this, right? They really cared about how they looked, how their, you know, their appearance, how they, you know, appeared to others was very important in the culture. And so to dress like this, to act like this was obscene to the people. And he's found sitting right at the city center in front of the gate. And the gate was kind of like, that was the place. It's where the judge, a lot of the judges sat. 
It's where he would, was sitting, right? He was one of the judges. And so basically everybody would have seen this. It's where everybody passed by. And who can really blame him, right? He's just found out all his people, his people are set to be destroyed completely. And with, with, legal, with a legal backing, not just there's an enemy or people who hate them, but they actually have the permission and authority of the government to be destroyed. And maybe he wonders if he's to blame. It's unclear. We don't know. Maybe he's kind of reflecting on, maybe I should have just bowed down. I don't know. We don't know if Mordecai caused this through his actions indirectly or not with his kind of vendetta that he has going on with Haman. But we can be certainly sure that there's no justification for wiping out an entire people. So we definitely can't give him any kind of pass on this insanity. And at this point, what I find somewhat interesting is that Esther, Esther hasn't heard the news yet. She hears about Mordecai before she hears about the eradication of the Jews. I guess news doesn't travel to the queen as quickly as it does to the rest of the empire. And, and also we see, we kind of get this glimpse of what's really going on, that she hasn't been summoned for over 30 days. So the king maybe is already getting bored with her. Seems to move quickly. I guess hundreds and hundreds of beautiful virgins can really mess with your head a bit. So he is now, she hasn't summoned her. He, she's kind of, I guess, in her own area where she's got her servants and everything, and is kind of a little bit in a bubble, it seems. She has no idea about this edict that's gone out to the rest of the uh, empire. I guess they didn't have Facebook, so it takes a little bit longer. So, and she actually hears about Mordecai before she hears about this. So people are telling her things, but I guess not this. So when she hears that Mordecai is dressed in sackcloth, you know, she's taken back. She doesn't really know what's going on. She's concerned for him and why he's acting this way. And then from here, this is where this brings us to what we're going to be focusing on today. We get this exchange between Esther and Mordecai. And we have to kind of keep in mind that this is not it's not direct, right? He didn't she didn't go to him. She couldn't have done that. And so everything is like through his or through her servants, which I find a bit also a bit interesting. So all of this would have taken a lot longer. You know, they're having basically a quick conversation as we read it, but it actually would have taken it could have taken days. We don't know. Uh, for those messages that go back and forth between them. And what I want to do today is look at some key phrases that both Mordecai and Esther use throughout this dialogue that have huge implications, and I believe huge implications and applications for us and our lives today. These are phrases that are incredibly well-known. I think if you've ever heard a quote from the book of Esther, it most likely might have been one of these. Um, and we're going to look at three in particular, and this is going to be our three points today. And the first is going to be, for such a time as this, and the second, less popular, but I think very important, is our deliverance will arise from another place. And the third is one of my favorite, my favorite line in this book for sure, if I perish, I perish. A powerful statement. So as we go through these three points, we have to always be keeping this in mind, that these are spoken on a backdrop 
of the possible annihilation, complete wipeout of their people. Everything's at stake. Everything is on the table. It's a pretty, it's like a high stakes poker game. And Esther and Mordecai are all in. Either God is going to redeem his people, he's either going to save his people, bring salvation to them, or they will all find death. Everything's at stake. Kind of brings the level and authority of these words to, I think, a deeper level. So let's look at point number one. For such a time as this. And this is found in verse 14. And who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. So everything seems hopeless. The decree has been made to destroy the Jews. It's set. Can't be undone. What can possibly save us now? And then we have this kind of, wait a minute. I feel like Mordecai had this moment when he had the first encounter with one of her servants, the queen. She is, in fact, herself a Jew. A fact only known to Mordecai at this point, as far as we know. Could this be just a hopeful coincidence? Is it luck that she, of all of the hundreds and hundreds of women that were taken to be brought before the king, that she was selected, chosen to be queen? The author is pointing clearly to God's providence. God must have been working behind the scenes. It's not merely good luck that she is where she is. There's a purpose behind it, and God is at work here to see his people saved. I want to note, though, something I find very important. We'll look at actually a little bit as we go. That it's not with absolute certainty. They don't have absolute certainty. He starts with, who knows? What an encouraging way to start a, you might, uh, I need you to go and you might die, but who knows? Maybe you're here for a reason. Who knows? There's a sense that they can't be sure. They're not positive it's going to work. But at the same time, it seems almost too good to be merely chance, right? So I want you to think about where you are in your life now. Where are you? Maybe you are where you are for a reason. Maybe you are where you are for a reason. Maybe it's you that God has in mind to share the gospel with that person that you encounter that you coughed and wonder, hmm, should I? Maybe some other time. We can't be sure. We can never really be 100% positive or know what will happen. But what if? What if it's you? So often, I believe, we miss what God wants to do in our lives, and we miss what God wants to do through us, where we are, because we're so consumed and focused on where we want to be going. Don't miss it. Because who knows? You may be where you are for a purpose. 
God may have a reason for exactly where you are in your life right now. It might be for just this time that you're working at the job you're working at, even though it's not your dream job. I can attest. It might be for this season that you're in the classes you're in, even though sometimes you have to really fight against the grain for what, when people know that you're a Christian. It might be for this particular moment that you live where you live and with whom you live. Be on the lookout. Where could I be serving? Where could I be ministering? What might God have for me here now where I am? Where can I be loving people better? Are there ways you could be serving and praying, maybe even for your neighbors, your colleagues? Who knows? Maybe you're here for such a time as this. You'll need to apply some faith if you want to step in that direction because you won't know for sure. You can't be 100% positive what will happen if you invite your neighbors around for dinner and talk to them about your faith and the church you go to and what you found your life on. You don't know what will happen, but who knows? Maybe that's exactly why God led you to that apartment. Point number two, deliverance will arise from another place. This is also from verse 14. This actually precedes the other part we read. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Now that seems, okay, wait a minute. Now if, when we read this, we may be tempted to first think, well, when, what's the point? What's the point? Oh, I'm stepping on the cord, aren't I? Told you it was going to happen. God is going to do what he wants to do with or without me. So why do I need to go and talk to my neighbor? They're jerks. I don't like them that much. They're weird. They play weird music at weird hours. Why should I pray for my coworkers? It seems like either way, things are going to be done as God wants them to be done. So I'd rather not do anything that makes me uncomfortable. Can't I just do things that are easy and kind of in my zone? There's some, that Jesus burger sounds good. It's also a really cool thing. But sometimes God is going to call us to where we are for a reason because we're the ones that God wants to use in that specific way. But he's going to work his way out either way. Now Mordecai warns Esther, actually, if she doesn't step up, if she doesn't go in and do something, God will find some other way. But it won't go well for her. He actually says that her family will be kind of wiped out, her father's name. She was an orphan, so her father was already gone. But like the name, like basically she would be forgotten. Nobody would even know who she is. Obviously, that's not how it turned out, as we know who she is. But I also want to just put in here that we today have grace. We're under grace, right? So I'd, I don't believe that God is going to be punishing us if we don't answer the call, if we don't talk to our neighbors or answer any kind of call into ministry that he might put on our hearts or on our lives. He's not going to punish us. He's not going to wipe out our families. I hope not. No, 
He's not. We're under grace. But that said, I do believe that we will miss out on blessings that God has for us when we do obey him. Or we'll miss out on opportunities for God to bless us when we don't obey him. When we don't answer those calls. When we don't maybe step into those positions that God's put us in for a reason. Now when I say blessings, I'm not talking about a new car and a big house. I'm not talking about like a full bank account. It's not the gospel of the Bible. What I do mean are blessings of greater joy, deeper love, a more profound wisdom. These things we gain through the experiences God calls us to. And yes, I do, I believe if if we don't say, if we don't do it, if we say no to God, when we say no to God, which I pretty sure most Christians would admit they've said no to God in one way or another. Mm, I should probably pray for that person. Mm, nah. Might be uncomfortable. Might be weird. When we say no to God, he and he wants to do something, it's going to be done. He is sovereign and his will will be done. And this in itself is a, should be a comfort for us, right? Ugh. We don't have it. It's not God's kingdom isn't resting on my shoulders and your shoulders. That's good news. God knows what he's doing, and he's doing it beyond us. We serve a big God who's in control and knows what he's doing. But God's purpose extends beyond merely the action he is calling us to do. It's not just about needing it done. He also has us in mind when he asks us to do something for him. And you will miss out on spiritual growth and deeper connection with God and a deeper understanding of a filling of the Holy Spirit that God has for you through the experiences he is calling you to do. When we say yes to God, it's a walk, right? The, the faith, our faith is a walk. And when we say yes to him, we just take a, we take a step closer to him. Our faith grows in the sense that we have a deeper understanding of what God can accomplish through us. And he blesses us in that. He always gives us what we need. So you can, right, we, read, we learned that in, in uh, um, Second Peter. He always gives us what we need. So when we say no to him, we're also saying no to what he has for us through that experience that we would have gained. And he usually just gives us another one, so... It's good news, but I would encourage you to say yes. Point number three. If I perish, I perish. This is from verse 16. Let's read through the whole verse, actually. Go, gather together, this is Esther talking, go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night and day. I and my attendants will fast as you do, when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. So she's made the decision. I'm doing it. I will go to the king. She's playing all the cards. She's pushed everything she has onto the table. Her very life is in the balance and the lives of all her fellow Jewish people. And remember in verse 11... It says that everyone knows, and I'm, I'm going to slightly paraphrase this, but everyone knows 
Anyone that goes to the king, right, without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death. And that's automatically. That's automatically. That's like if you walked in the room and the king wasn't looking, you'd be dead maybe before he turned around. It was an automatic death unless the king decided to raise the golden scepter and then you would and then he would spare your life. Mordecai has told her she's the one to step up. It could be that this is the very reason she is where she is. And she's hesitant in her response, which is pretty understandable. She reminds Mordecai, right, what he's really asking her to do. You know, everybody knows that if you go into the king, you're dead. And I, remember, she hasn't been summoned now for 30 days. Maybe the king's like, I don't want to see Esther anymore. It's kind of interesting. This just popped in my head. Always a dangerous thing to talk about when you're preaching. But it kind of is like, seems like a bit of a, a counter, right? Because in the beginning, we see Vashti, who won't come to the king when, um, when she's called. And now we have the king, Esther, wanting to go to the king, but... Scared because it might mean her life. Kind of see the flip-flop of the other side of it. She doesn't know if this is God's will either. Right? She isn't sure. Who knows? Maybe it is. Maybe it isn't. Maybe this will all be for nothing and she'll just be executed. But if she doesn't act, who will? So she boldly and wisely proceeds and says, If I perish, I perish. I'm all in. Whatever happens. And this is what we can get from this. To walk with the Lord and answer his call to ministry will always require some level of faith and personal sacrifice on our behalf. When we truly are walking with the Lord, there is always going, when we say yes to God, it always requires faith. I trust you. I don't know what's going to happen, but I trust you. And it requires sacrifice. Usually we have to let something go to move forward. Or maybe we have to walk out on something that we don't know if we can trust it. We have to have faith and we have to have personal sacrifice. You just might be where you are for such a time as this. And God will, God's will will be done. But he wants to use you to accomplish it not just for the sake of accomplishing it, but for your sake. So the question then is now, are you willing to take the risk? Are you willing to make the sacrifice that might be required of you? The three things I want us to get from this verse 16, especially keeping this in mind, and that's number one, be willing to let go. That's usually our greatest problem being willing to let go to move forward. Esther had more to lose than you or I will ever have in our lifetime, probably collectively. I say that reluctantly, but possibly. She was the queen of an empire. She had possessions, more money than she could spend, servants, power, comfort. She was waited on hand and foot. Everything she would ever need was given to her without question. Her life was good. 
But she was willing to lose it all. She was willing to, she had to let that go first, is what I want to point out. She had to let that go before she could get to a point of saying, if I perish, I perish. Luke 9.23, and Jesus was saying to them all, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. The Christian life is one that views Jesus as greater than ourselves, greater than anything we can gain, greater than anything we can possess. He is greater. If we ever hope to accomplish great things for Christ, we must first value Christ above all things. We can't, learn, we can't let things go. We can't move forward until that's the truth in our lives. If we ever hope to accomplish great things for Christ, we must first value Christ above all things. Philippians 3, 7-8 says it like this. But whatever, what, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ. Can we say that about everything in our lives? It's all garbage in comparison to the surpassing value of Christ in my life. Now, this certainly applies to physical things, which I think we can wrap our brain around. Okay, if I had to, like, give up my, my iPhone, I probably could. If I had to give up my car, I can count those things. But what about our status? What about our pride? Are we willing to consider how people see us as garbage in comparison to Christ, our need for affirmation, to be seen a certain way, to not look foolish? This image we have of how we want the world to see us, are we willing to sacrifice that if we needed to? Are we willing to look foolish when we call ourselves Christians? My hope is that all of you would find the meaning and purpose of where God has you in your life right now. What is the meaning? What is the purpose? What, what am I called to do right now where I am? Not down the road, not in the future, although we, can, we want to think about those things too at times. But what am I, what am I called to be doing now? And that you would step into it boldly, as we see with Esther. And with a willingness for self-sacrifice, finding your true value in your relationship with Christ. For this to take place, we must first devalue the things of the world. Both our physical possessions, our vices, Netflix, social media, all the things we waste time on. Also our pride, our need for affirmation, our fears, our doubts. Devalue these things as loud voices in our heads by the surpassing value of Christ. It's not all about sacrifice, though. We must also be tactful 
in our obedience to the Lord, when he calls us to do something, whatever it might be. So number two is wisdom is required. Wisdom is required. Esther took time to fast, and there's no mention of prayer here, as, we, as I've talked about, but it, is, it seems to be pretty implied, and we will certainly apply prayer to our lives today. She did not stand alone is the key. She asked those close to her to fast with her. First, those in her inner circle, so her servants. She said, we're going to be the people closest to me, the ones who know me well. They're going to be fasting with me. They're going to be praying with me. They're going to know what's going on. I'm not going to do this alone. I'm not going to stand alone. And then second, we see that she encourages all of God's people in the whole city to be fasting and praying with her as well. And the Christian life is not meant to be walked alone. We want to be tactful and especially remembering that I don't need to be doing everything alone. Especially when, it, when we're stepping into answering God's call, right? Even if it's something as simple as connecting with your neighbor, you say, oh, you know, okay, I'm going to do it. I'm going to invite my neighbor over and yeah, I'm not going to be crazy. I'm just, but I'm going to tell him I'm a Christian. I'm going to tell him I go to church and Get prayer support for that. Ask, ask people in your life to be praying for you for that. Don't do it alone. Don't stand alone in that. We don't need to. And I'm also reminded of this kind of, she asked the whole city to be praying, that we too should be praying for our city. And we should be praying for the local church as a whole, all of the ministries that God is, is doing here and doing through, doing things through in these different ministries of our church and also in all of the churches here in Freiburg and in our country, and in our nations all around the world, that we're all from a few different nations here, that we're to be praying and hoping that they're also praying for us and what we're doing here. We need to be kind of united in that as well. Just as a side note, number three, I want to end with touching on evangelism, which we see here, because I think today I see these principles most applied to evangelism, which is what I've been kind of poking at as we went through. And I, I tie this really well with Paul, who is prophesied about. He gets a prophecy. It's kind of a weird one. The prophet grabs his belt and ties his hands together. And it's like, the guy who owns this belt is going to be chained like this. And it's a pretty interesting way to prophesy. And then in Acts 21, 12 through 13, we kind of see his response and the kind of response of the people. So when we heard this, so this is Luke writing this. So when we heard this, we, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So he knows if he goes to Jerusalem, this is going to happen. He's going to be imprisoned. And they're like, don't do it. Then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Paul knew he had a calling for such a time as he was in. He knew it. He could not be pushed to either side, even their weeping, even though it, seemed, it really affected him. He was sad. He didn't want to hurt them. But he's like, I have to go. What am I going to do? This is why I'm here. He knew it would cost him everything. But it didn't even slow him down. How many times have we maybe avoided talking with someone about Jesus because of selfish reasons? I know none of you, but I'm guilty of that in my life. I'll look stupid. 
Or maybe we go the pessimistic, ah, oh, they're not going to really listen. I, I know I can see them. I know them well enough. They're not going to be interested in it. They're not going to care. So what's the point? And if God wants to save them, he will. He'll find a way. He'll find someone else. Maybe you are that way that he wants to use. Maybe you are in their life for such a time as this. Esther was willing to die. Paul was willing to die. Are we willing to look foolish? What are we willing to sacrifice? I've talked with many of you who have talked to to me about the struggles you've had in your studies with controversies you've had with other students when they find out you're a Christian. And I just want to encourage you in this to, to be steadfast to stand firm in the surpassing value of Christ in your life and to get support within the church, get an inner circle of people that are praying with you, praying for you, and hopefully know that all of the churches are praying for those situations. We are where we are, and who knows? Maybe it is just for a time like now. What purpose may God have for you where you are? And are you fulfilling it? What will it cost you? And are you willing to risk it? Before you all hit the streets now, screaming Jesus on the tram at people, I want to end with something that will, this will kind of tie in with what we're going to look at next week. Let me encourage you that God also loves us to use wisdom. And we'll see that next week and actually the next two weeks as Esther you know, she's, she's risking it all. She's made the decision. She's going in. She's said yes. But she's still wise and tactful in her approach, right? She doesn't just run into the throne room and say, listen, king, you can't do that. You know, she's not crazy. So we don't want to be crazy. We don't need to be crazy. God can use us also in our wisdom and how we know people and how we connect to other people to share his truth. She is, she's actually going to be incredibly graceful and tactful and wise in her approach. And I think we can learn a little bit from her approach and how she goes about it. So that's something we can be encouraged with, right? God doesn't want us to be crazy. He wants us to take risks. He wants us to step out in faith. He wants us to trust him and to make sacrifices. But he also gives us wisdom to do it well. I want to invite the band to come up as we prepare to close. And I'll just leave you with this. Be where you are and let God use you until you get to where you're going, wherever you are now. He knows what he's doing and he will get you through to the end. Using each and every moment that you say yes to him not only for his greater purpose and plan that he is working out, but also for you and your sanctification. Amen.